What's up, everybody? As always, I'm Nick, and I'm here with Ryan, and this is another episode of Bible Dingers, and we have a special episode for you today. We are talking eschatology, but thus far we have covered all of the popular views in our audio podcasts, and here on YouTube, we are bringing you a special episode with three experts on the topic. Ryan, why don't you tell them a little bit about the experts and what we're talking about here? Yeah, so uh, if you guys have made it this far on our audio podcast, then you know that we've gone and spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation. We've had experts on to explain each of the four major eschatological views. We walked uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. We gave the historical context and things of that nature. And so we thought that it would be really a, a really good way to finish up the season to have different experts from differing views come together to have a, converse, a conversation on eschatology, why they hold to their views, why they disagree with some of the other points that the other views make, and things of that nature. And since it's such an interesting conversation, we thought we would put it on YouTube as well. And if you don't really understand the views, you know, that's that's something to think about when you're going into this video we're going into this video sort of with the presupposition that you already have a basic understanding of the views. And if you don't, we would encourage you guys to go back and listen to the beginning of our audio podcast series so you can hear folks explain what postmillennialism is, what dispensational premillennialism is. And, and when you have that base understanding, you can then come and understand this conversation quite a bit more than if you were just jumping into eschatology for the first time and you were hearing folks discuss some of these points. And so I uh, just wanted to set the table for this conversation. Uh, like Nick said, we're really excited to have these guests on. We really respect these men for the work that they've done in each of their categories. With that being said, I'm going to kick it around the round table here so that our guests can introduce themselves. And uh, Pastor Dale Partridge, I'm going to start with you. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your ministry, and a little bit of your background? Pastor yeah, Dale, before you, before yeah, you say ahead. that, I do I do want to set the stage clear and let our listeners know that we respect each and every one of your views, and we tried our hardest to get a dispensational on uh, the call today, and we wanted them to support their view, but unfortunately, we couldn't find anyone. We had a few people that said yes, and it just didn't work out. But if you want to know about dispensational pre-mill, you can hear our audio episode. Um, Daryl Bach was on there, and he's a, a very respected name in that uh, field. But here we do have the other three eschatological views represented. Uh, sorry about that, Dale. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, yeah. Uh Dale Partridge. I'm a pastor here in Prescott, Arizona. I am the founder of relearn.org, which is really a ministry to fight for biblical and theological uh, clarity, um, biblical and theological literacy, uh, hoping to create gospel fluency in the church today, that we can enter into conversations at any point and understand the mechanics of the gospel and communicate the gospel clearly to one another. Um, written a handful of books, uh, mostly around uh, male and female roles. Finished a book called The Cover of Glory on uh, uh, a biblical defense for the doctrine of head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I just wrote a book uh, called The Manliness of Christ. 
uh, talking about the masculinity of Jesus and how that affects the effeminate church that we have today. And uh, talked about uh, a variety of other things. I have a podcast called Real Christianity and uh, on social media. Um, I am not necessarily a post-millennial expert. I, however, I think can represent a view that is pretty common among uh, Christians today in the sense that I never came, um, I haven't understood the post-millennial view for you know, longer than a handful of years. And it's not necessarily central to my theological focus. However, uh, I think that um, my experience, again, will be relatable to a lot of the average Christians out there that are trying to make a discerning decision around eschatology. Uh, having gone from being a historic pre-mill uh, at the Master's Seminary uh, under John MacArthur, understanding some, some of that position there, moving into an Amil position, and then moving into what we would often call an optimistic Amil, and then pushing myself over into you know, a Puritan style post-millennialism. And so uh, that's my hope. And just, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the guy that's going to pull off the conversations maybe as Doug Wilson would or Jeff Durbin might. But I th again, I think I can represent the view in a way that's relatable to the average man. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We're really excited to have you on. Um, I'm going to now kick it over to Chris Gardner. Can you give us a little bit about your uh, background? Sure. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up in uh, the Holiness Church uh, background, which primarily uh, held to a, uh, it wasn't really dispensationalism, but it was certainly was the pre-mill, pre-tribulation uh, perspective. And um, I'd have to say that even growing up, I, I struggled with that um, as I was reading the scriptures. Uh, in terms of background, I'm a pastor uh, here in Brooklyn, New York at Metropolitan Baptist Church. Um, I taught for about 25 years at uh, New York School of the Bible, which is a branch of Lancaster Bible um, College that's here in, in uh, Manhattan. And uh, recently finished my doctoral work uh, in expository preaching so that I can write. Since Dale has um, described all of his writings, I have a lot to catch up on. <laughs> but the other side of that is uh, I'm also not an expert um, in terms of, uh, you know, debates, uh, you know, and even a mill. And as I think all three of us would say, none of us represent a, you know, this position because the, the position, there's so many different forms within those positions. So, you know, I have my perspectives on the Amil uh, position that agrees in some areas with some, disagrees with others. Uh, so I think this is going to be an interesting discussion that we're going to have uh, with each of us uh, bringing our own input into uh, the, this, uh, the, the, the contrast of these uh, three positions. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. And finally, we are going to kick it over to Dr. Chung. Could you give us a little bit about yourself and your background as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a Korean. I'm a Korean immigrant theologian. Um, you know, I studied at Harvard Divinity School for my MDiv, and my doctorate is from Oxford University. And uh, I have been teaching theology at Denver Seminary for the past about 18 years. 
And before then, I taught at uh, King University in Bristol, Tennessee, as a professor of theology. And I have been writing articles and books on uh, historic premillennialism. And uh, I think, you know, uh, I have co-edited a work with uh, Craig Blumberg on the case for historic premillennialism. And also I co-authored with uh, David Matthewson at Denver Seminary on uh, the models of premillennialism. And also I have published many articles and books in Korean. So I am uh, bilingual. Uh, I am a bilingual theologian. So both in English and in Korean, I have authored, edited, and co-authored and translated for about uh, 35 bucks. And so I think I can uh, faithfully represent the position of historic premillennialism here. I'm so excited about that. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, like I said, I'm, I'm so thankful for all three of you coming on here and representing your view. I think it's going to be an awesome conversation. Um, I do want to go ahead and move right in. So for the audience, just so you guys know what's going to go on here, this first part is we're going to give everybody the floor for a little bit to explain why they hold to the view that they hold to, give us some of their, you know, a few of their main reasons and biblical supports why. And then from there, we're going to open up the conversation. So, uh, Dr. Chung, I'm going to go ahead and kick it right on back over to you. Can you take the next five, ten minutes and give us an idea of why you hold to historic pre-mill? Okay, great. Yeah, I'm just, I want to point out, first of all, that uh, I will see my, you know, Amil brothers and sisters and post-mill brothers and sisters and even dispensational brothers and sisters in heaven. I have no doubt about their salvation if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So this issue is not about salvation, okay? And this is about, you know, a faithful interpretation of difficult passages in relation to eschatology, and especially uh, about the millennial kingdom. So I think I want to point out that, first of all, and then... The main reasons, uh, the first reason for me to adopt historic premillennialism is actually primarily uh, the exegetical reason. If you read Revelation 19 through 21, especially you know, 19 through 20, uh, when the Lord Jesus uh, comes again, Jesus destroys uh, the the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. And then they are thrown into the lake of fire. And then we have the uh, story of the millennial kingdom in the early part of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And then after uh, at the at the end of the book, uh, the millennial kingdom, uh, we have, you know, the Satan. Satan will be uh, released again, and then uh, after his final attempt to attack uh, God's kingdom, and then he will be thrown into the lake of fire, and he will find, he will find, Satan will find uh, 
the Antichrist and the false prophet are already there. So which means chapter 19 and chapter 20 should be read uh, from a chronological perspective, which means uh, the millennial kingdom account in chapter 20 cannot be about the first coming also, it cannot be about, you know, the optimistic period of golden age at the end of history as post-millennialism has been arguing. So that is the first reason. So if you read chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, you will realize these two chapters, especially Jesus throwing the, the Antichrist and the false prophet into hell will be prior to Jesus throwing the devil into the lake of fire, the same lake of fire. So Satan will find the Antichrist and the false prophet uh, uh, in, in the lake of fire. So they were already, they will be already there uh, before uh, Satan will be thrown into the lake fire. So that is the first reason. The second reason is actually, you know, uh, when we use the language historic, here the language historic means uh, so many people uh, throughout church history, especially, especially in the early centuries, in the first century, in the second century, in, and in the third century, most of church fathers, most of church fathers, except maybe some, you know, uh, non-mill people, including Bridget, uh, also, uh, you know, the later period of Augustine, and some other, maybe some other uh, church fathers, except some of them, most of church fathers accepted a version of historic premillennialism as the valid interpretation of chapter 19 and 20. I think that's a very important thing. And especially uh, John the Apostle, right? John the Apostle had his own uh, apostolic fathers, which means his own disciples, you know, Papias and Polycarp. So Papias and Polycarp are direct, direct disciples of John the Apostle. And John the Apostle, while John the Apostle was alive, Polycarp and Papias were his disciples. And Papias and Polycarp were uh, historic, generally historic premillennialists. And also Polycarp's uh, disciple and one of the most important theologians in the first and second, especially in the second century of church history is Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was one of the major proponents of history premillennial interpretation of the book of Revelation. So, you know, uh, John the Apostle, I think you know, it would be very natural to think that John the Apostle, his own interpretation of the book of Revelation, oh, you know, uh, must have impacted his disciples' interpretation of the book of Revelation. So especially Irenaeus is one of the major theologians in the first, in the second century, and he advocated 
a version of history premillennial understanding of the book of Revelation. And then after, after him, we have a lot of probably, I think, you know, at least 80 or 90, even 95% of church uh, fathers were historic premillennial lasts. So that is the second reason why I adopt historic premillennial interpretation uh, must be uh, must be regarded as the very uh, proper understanding of the book of Revelation. And then just in the third reason, maybe you know, if I am allowed to talk about the third reason, I think uh, many uh, throughout church history, many uh, credible and trustworthy biblical interpreters uh, have been advocating a version of history premillennialism, especially uh, during the 16th and 17th century, a lot of Puritans, they uh, recovered history premillennialism. And then in the, especially in the Reformed Baptist tradition, uh, including uh, Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon, and also I think you know, another Anglican figure, uh, 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 John Ryrie, and, and other you know, figures. And in the, in the 20th century, we have John Piper and Wayne Grudem and also uh, Francis Schaeffer and Don Carson and all you know, uh, uh, reputable and also authoritative interpreters of the Bible. Many of them are historically premillennialists, including our own Dr. Craig Blumberg, and uh, Dr. Rickas and others. So uh, those are three major reasons why I adopt a version of history premillennialism as the most valid and appropriate understanding of the book of Re Revelation, especially chapter 19 and 20. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Sung, for that elaborate uh, reason why. So let's just uh, recap real quick. So his reason for being an historic premillennialist is an inevitable reading of chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation because he says that we need to read it chronologically and that there were quite a few early church fathers that held to this group, uh, to held to this view, uh, such as the famous Apostle John and Papyrus and Polycarp and Arrhenius. And he made the claim that 80 to 90% of early church fathers held the view of historic premillennialism. Um, with that being said, Dr. Chris Gardner, can you give us a reason why you are amillennial? Well, certainly, because I studied the scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say. Uh, okay. Um, there's a... Uh, there. There's a lot of things. Um, we'll get into the back and forth in terms of uh, the argumentation um, of uh, the position stated. But I would um, primarily say each of us has a hermeneutic. And uh, it depends on our hermeneutic as to how we interpret any passage of the scripture. Uh, so my, my biblical hermeneutic, which has developed... Um, like I said, uh, from very early on, but I've, I've continued to uh, progress in that, 
is um, that the, the biblical text is literal, typological. Uh, in other words, it is written for its particular era of time, but it also um, it speaks forward into uh, Christ's first coming, if we're talking about the Old Testament, and if we're talking about the New Testament, uh, looking back on Christ's first coming and looking forward to his second coming. And that uh, every passage of Scripture that we look at has to be seen in light of that. Um, so that when we're, when we're looking at the Scriptures, we have to begin in Genesis. We can't begin with Revelation in the passages in Revelation. We have to begin in Genesis. We have to see how the Scripture unfolds and then look at how the New Testament writers interpret uh, the Old Testament. That's particularly true of the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation is 90 to 95% out of the Old Testament. Uh, there's very little new information given to us in uh, the book of Revelation. It is primarily about what, um, what God has done, what he is doing, and what he's, he has said he's going to do in terms of the future. And so as we, as we interpret a passage, whether it's Revelation 20 or uh, the whole book of Revelation, we have to see that in light of how, uh, how are the New Testament writers, how do they use the Old Testament? How do they understand the Old Testament as they see it in light of its, its literal context, that is, its historical context, but how it pointed forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, as Christ fulfills the, um, the, the fullness of the Old Testament, how it speaks to his final fulfillment in the second coming. And uh, I think by introducing a millennial period sometime in the future, what we're doing is we're saying, well, there's actually four ways that you have to interpret the scriptures. You have to interpret it in its, in its literal context or historical context. You have to interpret it in terms of, of Christ's first coming. You have to interpret it in terms of his initial second coming and then his final second coming. And I think that's stretching the way that the, uh, that, that the biblical writers uh, approach the scriptures. In terms of um, looking at the chronology of Revelation, um, I think that we have to ask ourselves, uh, is the whole book chronological? Because if, if we see the whole book as chronological, we almost have to become a dispensationalist. Uh, if, we, if we see it, just everything's moving you know, in that, that chronological sequence. I don't believe uh, that it's given to us in a chronological sequence. Um, I, I think there's some uh, aspects to it, but uh, not that way. And I guess I finally would say, um, if if we're going to have the false prophet and the um, uh, the antichrist uh, cast into hell, and and we're going to take that in a fully literal uh, way, then we also have to say that there is a real uh, Hades, and there is uh, the you know the, in a sense the death angel, um, because uh, hell um, is also you know, Hades is also being cast, uh, you know, death and Hades are also being cast into um, the lake of fire in 
uh, chapter 19. So I think we're, we're, we're going to struggle a bit if we're going to take those things in an actual literal way. Okay, so I think to sum it up, before we move on to Pastor Partridge, I got a couple a couple main points here. The first one is that uh, Amil comes more from a more proper hermeneutic, you would say, that's used throughout the entire Bible. Um, and then secondly, if you insert chronology and literalism into Revelation, it makes it much more difficult to interpret passages. Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, Dr. Chung, Dr. Gardner, you guys have given us lots of good points that we are going to work on here in the near future. But before that, I want to kick it over to you, Pastor Partridge, to give us a couple of the reasons why you hold to post-millennialism. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I share with the uh, literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, uh, we know that we have to interpret certain passages of scripture, like apop- apocalyptic literature in a different way. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I hold to what's called partial preterism, which a lot of amillennial and postmillennials hold to, which really is the idea that uh, most of the eschatological prophecies about the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, uh, the content of Matthew 24, uh, much of Revelation, were really speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD, Jesus's judgment. He's prophesying in Matthew 24 about the coming judgment for Israel rejecting the Messiah. And there's a, a cost of judgment that's coming to that. And so uh, that's how I would interpret uh, Matthew 24. R.C. Sproul would hold that interpretation as well. Um, the thing that pushed me into postmillennialism really uh, for a long time were, were more philosophical at the beginning, and then they they really found their foundation in Scripture as I went through that journey. Uh, I really struggled with just the idea of the pessimistic reality of the premillennial, and you know, for our non-optimistic amillennial brothers. And so there was, you know. We know eschatological pessimism is, is a term uh, declaring that, that things are essentially going to get worse, um, that the moral state of society is going to continue declining. Um, we know that John MacArthur's famous si- uh, sermon that he recently put out, I think, what, two years ago, he, he says, we lose down here. You know, get, get it, church, that this, is, this battle is going to be lost down here. And... Um, I think that that narrative doesn't fit with the entire Genesis to Revelation narrative of who Jesus Christ is. And so when you have a premillennial or a pessimistic eschatology, uh, dispensationals would hold this as well, it views the church as an institution of failure. And um, you believe that the body of Christ will essentially never be able to effectively overcome evil in the world and that the gospel and the moral law of God are insufficient means to take dominion in society, which was the original desire, our original will of God to Adam, uh, which Adam failed. But we know that the plans of God were not frustrated by the fall and that God will continue to take dominion over the world, but now through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the, the second thing is it, it was causing me to have this, this pessimistic eschatology that I held uh, was causing Christians to perceive cultural decline as a form of progress. Mm-hmm. And so um you know, David Chilton, who wrote a book called Paradise Restored, you know, he says there's an idea that, uh, you know, pessimists, you know, premillennialism, we don't rally behind Christ is coming, but instead proclaim antichrist is coming, then Christ will come. You know, so uh, tribulation becomes, in a sense, what they're looking forward to, because we know 
that uh, that means that the end is near and Christ is returning. So instead of taking dominion, they celebrate the dominion really of the devil to escape the, the world because that time is near. And instead of uh, ultimately winning the physical world to Christ, they are resigned to actually lose the world to Christ. You know, the great dispensational premillennial uh, J. Vernon McGee, you know, he had that quote, uh, we don't polish brass on a sinking ship and implying that we don't try to improve something that is all going to hell in a handbasket. Um, th the third thing that really struck me on the frustration about the other views is it makes evangelism an invitation to join the losing team. And that was a real big thing for me is that it causes converts to really adopt this uh, underdog complex where they see themselves as kind of a disadvantaged um, you know, victim in the world that their ministry will produce diminishing returns due to factors that are beyond their control. And, um, and that was viewing the church essentially as being predestined to lose. Now, I see the, the narrative of scripture from Genesis to the promise of uh, Abraham and the covenant that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in, uh, in the seed that's coming uh, and that it was, uh, you know, clarified in David and the Psalms speaking of the prophetic uh, dominion and power and reign and rule of this coming Messiah. And then, you know, Jesus coming, fulfilling those realities. Um, and then really, you know, the kingdom parables and the Great Commission all authority in, on earth, on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, go, therefore, uh, go get the nations, you know, uh, the nations, as we know in the Psalms, the nations are his inheritance. Um, you know, he will rule until, or he will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And so there's a, a narrative of victory that he shall have dominion over the world. And he does this through the proclamation of the gospel. He, uh, he does this by converting his enemies by making them his friends through conversion. So his, his weapon is conversion through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the church. Um, he is the body of, of Christ. He's not operating by himself. He's operating through the church to fulfill the great commission. And ultimately post-millennialism, you know, if you see that the church, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. If you see Christ is ruling and reigning now, he's ruling and reigning now at the ascension, sitting at the right hand of the father if he's reigning now, there's a kingdom now. Uh, you can't have a king without a kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. You have, you have this reality. And when this is going, uh, if he must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet and his enemies are put under his feet by proclamation of the gospel through the Great Commission by the church, uh, it's difficult to see uh, a losing Christ. Uh, and Christ, we don't do it on, the, on our own. The post-millennial view isn't that the church does it on our own. We do it as the body of Christ through the power of the Christ, which is the, who is the head of the church. And so uh, this gives Christians hope. It gives Christians work to do. Um, and post-millennialism doesn't believe that every person is going to convert to Christ uh, by the end of the time. No, it's that it will be the dominant worldview. Christianity will be the dominant worldview um, in, in the world. And we will see uh, a flourishing of the, the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission in great degree across every nation uh, when Christ returns. And so we can talk more uh, later as how that actually happens, but essentially it's a, it's a hopeful eschatology. Um, it, it shows that we have purpose. It doesn't mean that everything's linear and going straight up. Uh, it, it's up and down, um, but we do have hope. The kingdom is here. We are a part of the growth of that kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. 
Uh, and it's a really exciting uh, view that fits with the narrative of Genesis to Revelation. Thank you, uh, Pastor Dale. I think it's important for the listeners for us to just recap a bit and to refresh your mind because soon enough it will be rebuttal time. Um, the first argument was that Revelation 19 and 20 presents a, uh, a chronological reading and that it's inevitable for us to read it that way, and that uh, a significant amount of early church fathers held to a historic premillennialism, and that uh, we should definitely use church history as a means to, uh, to understand our own eschatology. Uh, people like Papyrus, Polycarp, Arrhenius, Charles Spurgeon were all historic premillennialists. And then uh, Dr. Chris Gardner says uh, that he came up with amillennialism, not came up with, but he understands and believes in amillennialism because um, the other views, uh, more so the uh, historic pre-mill, would adapt a forced literalism that would not only uh, look at those passages as literal, but other passages they would ignore that they would have to take literal if they were to take the, uh, the literal for some and not all. It's very inconsistent unless they're dispensational. Um, and he also said that uh, um, throughout the whole Bible, that there were two ways of viewing Scripture, one pointing forward to Christ's second coming and the other looking to his first coming. And that with the historic premillennialism, um, we are then looking to a third coming, a first, second and third coming. And Pastor Dale said that um, he has a optimistic view of the end times, not a pe pessimistic view. And that the pessimistic view looks at the church as an institution of failure. And, um, and that he, from the other views, looks at evangelism um, as a form of joining the losing team. Um, so these are uh, generally the arguments that were presented today. Uh, Dr. Sung, I would love to give you an opportunity to ask the first question and direct it to whoever you like. Um, based on those arguments, are there any questions that you have? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. First of all, I cannot agree that, you know, uh, our view of history is merely pessimistic. You know, definitely uh, the world will uh, will decline in terms of you know, its, its morality and uh, its uh, rebellion against God. Definitely the, the world is hopeless, is hopeless. So uh, primarily pessimism is applied to the history of the world, history of the non-believers. But, you know, the church, the remnant, right? The true believers, the true church, its history should be always optimistic because, you know, so here I think we need to understand history has two lines. So one line, you know, declining, right? The human kingdom, secular kingdom, secular morality will continue to decline. We have LGBTQ issue. We, ha we have you know, euthanasia issue. We have abortion issue. Abortion has never been uh, never been healed. You know, we have been losing 50 million babies every year. Every year, 50 million babies through abortion, right? So secular history will never become uh better okay we'll never get better so they will continue to abort kids they will continue to uh commit you know atrocities you know we have no hope 
in the world. But what about the church? The church has been continuing to expand uh, to the ends of the earth. And the church has been uh, spreading, the gospel has been spreading all over the world. So pessimism is only about the secular kingdom, uh, the God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Its history will be will remain ever optimistic. Okay, so you know, by being a premillennialist, you are not joining a losing team. No, the church is already triumphant once and for all. When the Lord Jesus was crucified and when he was resurrected, the church already already had a victory once and for all, and the church is already seated at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, I agree with you. you know, the church is now with the Lord spiritually, but the church on earth is a militant church. The church will continue to fight against the evil, against the, the uh, against the force of evil. But the church's future, the church's history is never pessimistic. Okay, the church will be, and is now gaining victory and will be triumphant, you know, forever and ever. So I think you know pessimism. Okay, eschatological pessimism is only about the history of the world, the history of secular kingdom, not about the kingdom of God, not about the kingdom of Christ. And then in terms of uh, our millennialism, I think you know, our millennialists generally have more symbolic or spiritual uh, hermeneutics. I think you know, definitely you know, I am a strong advocate of typology. We, we should read the Old Testament as you know typology and as types of, of Christ and actually in, in Old Testament people, Old Testament figures, Old Testament institutions, Old Testament things and historical events. And many things are prefiguring the Lord's first coming primarily, but maybe you know uh, second coming as well. But I think the the book of the uh, the the book of Revelation. You should read the book of Revelation first of all from a literal perspective, from a grammatical historical perspective, and then if you are forced to interpret some uh, some uh, passages of the book of Revelation, you should exercise some kind of symbolic and spiritual exegesis. So I think you know the hermeneutic cannot force you to read the book of Revelation uh, from the outset, uh, from a spiritual or symbolic perspective. You should read the book of Revelation at face value. And then you want to read, you want to follow, follow the, the flow of the book. Okay. I think that's very important. And then one more thing, uh, actually here uh, today, we do not have a person from uh, a dispensational premillennialism. Uh, I believe, I believe definitely, I believe the book of Revelation is full of the Old Testament imageries. Especially, I think, you know, the book of Revelation is closely connected to the book of Exodus. If you read the book of Exodus, actually, the people of Israel were there when God poured out ten plagues upon the, the kingdom of Egypt, right? So uh, the people of Israel were not raptured before the plagues. 
during the 10 plagues, actually the people of Israel were there, were in the land of Egypt. And you know what? Out of, out of 10 plagues, only, you know, only one, two, three, only three were applied to uh, the people of Israel. And then, you know, from the fourth plague to the uh, 10th plague, those seven plagues were applied only to the Egyptians. So what does it mean? The church, the church will go through the tribulation, but the church will be miraculously protected by God. And actually the, the book of Exodus and the, the event of Exodus prefigures in some sense the eschatological event of the tribulation. Okay? So God's pouring his ten plagues upon the Pharaoh and the Egyptian kingdom is a prefigurement of God's pouring his plagues upon the kingdom of last Babylon. And then the church will be protected as the people of Israel were protected during the Exodus. So I think the book, if you read the book of Exodus from a more eschatological perspective, then I think you, know, you can read the book of Revelation as a uh, uh, you know archetype or antitype of the book of Exodus. So the church will go through the tribulation and the church will be protected and ultimately the church will be triumphant. So that is actually my, my responses to those you know, uh, friends here. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so there was quite a bit to to digest out of that. And I want to give uh, Pastors Partridge and Gardner both a, a chance to respond. We'll start with you, uh, Pastor Gardner. Uh, and can you give us your thoughts on when Dr. Chung said that you have to interpret Revelation literally and then really only when you're forced to allow the symbolism to speak through the book? Uh, certainly. Um, let's start in Revelation 1 and go to Re <laughs> Revelation 22. Um, the, the, the reality is there's very little in the book of Revelation. Uh, well, first of all, let's start with the, the biblical definition of prophecy. Um, God gives the definition of prophecy in uh, Numbers 12, um, verse six. And uh, he says that to this is a discussion to Miriam and to um, Aaron, who have challenged the leadership of Moses. And God says to them, uh, how did you dare to, to challenge uh, Moses for this leadership? Says when I speak to a prophet, I speak to him in dreams and visions and riddles. But when I speak to Moses, I spoke to him face to face. Uh, that's God's definition of, of prophecy, uh, dreams, visions, and riddles. So I don't think you take dreams, visions, and riddles uh, in a literal sense. And that's one of the reasons why I've always had problems with um, the, the, the pre-mill perspective is because of this idea that um, we would take uh, the prophetic literature which is in the Old Testament is primarily uh, poetry anyway, and that we're going to take that uh, in its literal sense. And that's why I said 
we need to see it in its its uh, historical context, the grammatical historical context that uh, that uh, Pastor Parcher said. Um, but but we also need to see it in a typological sense uh, as well, and and that it is, you know, the the whole of the Old Testament Jesus said is speaking about me, um, and, and that makes it typological, and then. Um, you know, what is it speaking about? Is it only speaking about Christ's first coming? Because then we only have a partial uh, fulfillment of God's purpose. No, it's speaking about him in terms of the the first coming being that, uh, that the beginning of the establishment of his work that finally uh, is fulfilled in his second coming. And uh, and so when we're reading Revelation, if we're reading Revelation out of the Old Testament, we have to see it in that same light. Certainly, there's historical aspects to it. Chapters two and three, there's no question that those chapters are uh, about the historical um, you know, churches that uh, were at the time. But even there, you have the seven churches. And that in itself tells us that even though it has some grammatical historical aspects to it, it also has typology to it. And, and then, you know, you go on to chapter four and five, certainly, uh, you know, I don't think any of us would say that God actually physically sits on a throne. He's pure spirit. And yet both of those chapters has God seated on the throne. We have the lamb in the midst of the throne. Is he sitting on God's lap? Uh, is he standing on God's lap? I mean, you know, how does that work? So we have typology going on right at the very beginning before we even get into, uh, you know, chapter six through chapter 20. And and certainly the same thing is true when, when we get to chapters 21, we're looking at uh, the New Jerusalem. And I know that there are a lot of people who believe that the New Jerusalem is going to be an actual city. It's going to come down from heaven. It's going to stay here on earth. Uh, and you're going to have, you know, um, it is the, the, the center of the the whole uh, of uh, of the millennial period. But you cannot read that that chapter without recognizing that that's typological. The, the, the numerology is typological. The description, this is the bride of Christ, uh, you know, so to 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 turn around and say, hey, this is, uh, you know, um, we have to take it literally. I would really, I mean, we don't have time to do it, but I would like to go through it chapter by chapter and look at uh, every chapter and say, how are you taking this literally? How are you taking this literally? I mean, I, I, I read the Left Behind series. I, ha I hate to say it, but I couldn't help but laugh all the way through it. You know, they're taking it literally. Um, and, and and they're missing the symbolism that's coming and flowing out of the Exodus passages and and the other passages. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that as we're reading it, we have to understand it in light of uh, those three things. What is the grammatical historical situation? The church is uh, is in tribulation. John says, I am, you know, I'm I, I'm part of this tribulation with you. Uh, so there is a historical setting in which it is written, but the descriptions of that setting, as we, as, starting with chapter one, you know, we do not believe that you, you literally are going to see seven 
you know, lampstands or that uh, that Jesus Christ has a sword coming out of his mouth. We see from the beginning of the book that that everything is is going to be in Samaan. It's going to be in signs uh, and symbols uh, throughout the book. So, um, yeah, that, that that would be my my issue. I also in terms of the eschatological pessimism, um, I believe uh, similarly that the church is victorious at the same time that the world is victorious. And, and, and let me just, I don't want to take a lot of time on that, but let's look at history. If we walk our way through history, we see the church ex- expanding into an area. And after it's expanded into that area, it, it collapses. All right. So uh, we talk about the Middle East, North Africa. They're very powerful in the, in, at the beginning. And then along comes Islam and the, the church collapses because of its complacency. Uh, and, you know, we can we can move on into Europe. We can see uh, the expansion of the church in Europe. And now look at Europe today. You know, there's there's hardly any Christianity, true Christianity in Europe today. Uh, you know, the United States is in that same process now. We're, we're following that same pattern that uh, that happened to Europe. Uh, you know, the church is strong and now it's declining uh, here. Do I believe uh, in eschatological pessimism? No. But do I believe that the church is going to struggle uh, and, and be in tribulation until the final um, second coming of Jesus Christ? Yes, because I see it all the way through the book of Revelation, but I also see it all the way through the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament. So, um, Pastor Partridge, I'd like to kick it over to you because they both spoke a little bit on the, you know, optimism and pessimism teams and the way that they categorize it. So can I throw it over to you to to hear your thoughts on that? Here we go. I was on mute. Um, yeah, so uh, I have an airport next to me, so this is the best place to record something, right? Um, yeah, a few things I think about. One is I don't think that we're always going to deal with sin and death and pain and a fallen cursed world until the return of Christ. So it's, I view it in the same way as a football team that's going to win. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's, it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean they're not going to be bruised and beaten and it might even look like they're going to lose in the second quarter. But the reality is, is that ultimately they do win and we do win because Christ has won and we win not because of our own merit, but because Christ wins through us and with us by the reigning and uh, preaching of the gospel. And so Um, I think of a couple things that, you know, Christianity has never gotten smaller, right? We know that uh, the ethic of gradualism is seen throughout the scriptures. And so we see that God is a patient incrementalist, and that's the way that he continues to grow uh, the kingdom. We see the kingdom parables uh, really discussing this ethic of gradualism. We see Matthew 13, the idea of the kingdom starting small as a mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, but it becomes like the biggest tree or the uh, of the garden plants. We know that a mustard tree is actually a canopy-like uh, tree that's about 20 feet tall and about 20 to 30 feet wide. It actually covers all of the garden. And we know that that is an agrarian culture understanding that there is a process of growth. It's not catastrophic like Dr. Chung would say in the sense that you would have uh, a kingdom that immediately comes when Christ comes is boom. You know, the way that the pre- premillennialists would view this is that 
that the church is on earth, but there's not really the kingdom on earth. There is the, uh, the church is maybe an outpost of the kingdom on earth, uh, but the kingdom is not necessarily here until Christ comes in his millennial reign. And so, um, so obviously, uh, Dr. Gardner and I have a different view of that, meaning that we believe that the kingdom is actually here now uh, being established uh, at the ascension of Christ, uh, or at the ascension of Christ. In terms of the literal hermeneutics and what Dr. Chung said, you know, my thought is, you know, in seminary, we had to do a lot of this balance. And this is the, this is the work of theologians is to balance out the types and genres of literature in the scriptures. You know, I, I seen a funny graphic that goes around the internet that shows a picture of Solomon's wife in the Song of Songs, if you took it literally, right? She's, you know, she's, she's got, uh, you know, eyes with birds on her face and a flock of goats down her hair and her teeth are made of sheep, you know. And, and obviously you can't make that interpretation literally in that situation, but there are some principles and uh, some things that you might be, so there's a, there is a very careful distinction uh, of what's going on. That's why I don't think Revelation really is the uh, foundational stone of eschatology. I think it's the capstone mm -hmm. of eschatology. And I think that it really needs to fit with the whole of scripture is Christ ruling and reigning and gradually growing. Again, like leaven uh, that leavens the whole lump or like the stone that comes and shatters in Daniel uh, talking about the, you know, you have the, um, you have the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, dream and you have Babylon as the head of the body and Persia uh, as the chest. And then you have the legs are Greece. And then you have the bottom of the feet and are, are uh, of Rome. And there's a prophecy that there's going to be another kingdom that comes and it starts as a stone and it becomes a mountain. And, and the idea that there's gradualism, it starts small and it becomes big. And, and that's something I think is thematically that what we see in scripture. Now, uh, the last thing I want to mention is, you know, this pessimism, optimism thing, we do have to all admit that we, that premillennialism and especially dispensationalism really promote a pessimistic outlook on life. We cannot deny that. I mean, the evidence is in, in the sense of uh, a variety of, uh, of different uh, facets. Let me give you just a couple examples. I mean, I think about, um, you know, uh, I think, how Lindsay's, I don't know how old he is now. I think he's like 93, but he once said, you know, we should be living like persons who don't expect to be around much longer. And, and that kind of fatalistic thinking that has influenced a generation, uh, you know, imagine you had someone that had a terminal diagnosis and only had a year to live. Is, I mean, is this person going to make plans for the future? Are they going to start a multi-generational business? Are they going to begin dating to start a family? Or, you know, they're, they're going to be reluctant to initiate anything that's going to be have require more time than their expected lifespan. And, and so short-term uh, thinking is a part of the dispensational specifically in some of the pre-mill uh, space. It, it's just a byproduct of it because when, when, when a person has no long person, no long term plan of dominion, the purpose becomes, you know, short-term actions. And um, I think about just for example, like I think about the cathedrals, of the Middle Ages, right? These cathedrals took like 500, 600 years to build. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, this is a level of multi-generational thinking that is absent from our generation. 
they are not expecting Jesus to come back next year. Okay, they are starting projects that are going to take centuries. Um, and, and there's a level of intricacy in the artwork and the design that we all love and see because they're doing it to the glory of God because they're building uh, things that they believe are kingdom influencers in the world. I mean, today, the, the cathedral in Cologne, Germany, it's the number one visited site in Germany. And it proves that when Christians do beautiful, great things uh, to the glory of God, people want to come and see it. Now, um, uh, I asked myself the question and I was talking to a friend, why don't we build like that anymore? And, and you cannot deny it is connected to our eschatology. Why don't we build multi-generationally like that anymore? Now our churches are in mini malls and you know, buildings that are made out of things that are going to fall apart in you know, 50 years. Um, you know, we, we don't, we'll never build that way until we think that way. And, and there has been a shift. Uh, the Puritan way of thinking, uh, the long view eschatology of way of thinking, um, you know, and again, we have our own proponents in the post-millennial camp from Jonathan Edwards and B.B. Warfield and, uh, you know, Charles Hodge and Bettner. And I, I would argue, you know, in part for Calvin. And, and, and so there's, there, I think that as we go longer in history, premillennialism and dispensationalism becomes harder to believe. If we go another thousand years, it becomes more and more difficult to believe. We go 4,000 years, it's even more difficult to believe. And the post-millennial view actually becomes more and more prevalent as you start to see it connect with the scriptures. I wish we had time to go through all of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, to show the thematic victory of Christ through the church, the second Adam, reigning and ruling through, his, through, uh, through the body of Christ on earth. Uh, again, not meaning that we're, we're going to take it by storm and no sin's going to wait. No, we're still going to have a fight, but it's optimistic, not just for the church, because every one of us has a victorious Christ. But the post-millennial view has a victorious church and that influences a victorious world that actually brings in the kingdom. Um, and Christ comes in and consummates that kingdom, restoring it, uh, taking away sin and death, which is the last enemy. So I'll stop there, but hopefully that was uh, kind of a, a quick word vomit of all the things. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, Dr. Chung, I kind of want to kick it back to you because it seems like there were a, a couple of rebuttals there to your position. Uh, and so could you give us a couple answers? Firstly, on the literal interpretation, I think that was struck um, by Dr. Gardner that if you were to start from Revelation 1 and go all the way to the end, that it's just it's just completely filled with things that you cannot take literally. Um, and then also, if you could respond to, after that, if you could respond to Pastor Partridge's um, rebuttal, that essentially, while you may say that it is an optimistic view for the church in reality and in um, practice, it's not. It, it's actually a pessimistic view. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, especially, you know, I want to uh, point out uh, my histo historic premillennial hermeneutic is more covenantal, not dispensational. Amen, so yeah. I am I am totally against dispensational hermeneutic. So as a historic premillennialist, I think you should distinguish sharply, okay, historic premillennial hermeneutic from uh, dispensational hermeneutic. I am a covenantal theologian. No, I'm a, a, a reformed theologian, so I am not in the camp of dispensational. So premillennialism, actually, we have historic 
and dispensational, right? So dispensational premillennialism is is actually you no know, is a, a, a more a serious um, distortion of what the Bible teaches. You know, so I'm sorry about the fact that we have now we do not have now you know a, a, a dispensational premill uh, representative. But anyhow, so I want to just sharply distinguish historic premill hermeneutic from dispensational hermeneutic. Okay, so you know. Most of historic millennialists, their hermeneutic was more covenantal. So, you know, on the basis of that, I think in my interpretation of the book of Revelation, uh, I do not want to uh, use the language literal. Okay, the, the language literal or literalism implies dispensationalism. So I do not want to buy that. So I want to use the language more grammatical and historical interpretation. Okay, so... On the basis of grammatical and historical interpretation, as I told you, the book of Revelation is filled with many symbols, types, images, and so on, right? So I think, you know, uh, you, are, you will be forced to interpret, uh, you know, uh, specific verses or words or passages from a more figurative perspective when you read the book of revelation therefore you know i definitely i'm a i'm i'm as i've told you i have been a, a strong advocate of typological interpretation of the old especially old testament so i think you know uh, and even in the new testament actually jesus was the teacher of the parables right so jesus used uh the figurative languages for his own teaching so I think definitely the book of Revelation, if, you know, if you find, if you find some figures of speech, if you find some parables or some images or some symbols, I think you need to interpret those symbols right from a symbolic or more spiritual perspective. Yeah, I do not, I do not uh, uh, you know, object to that. Okay, so I think, you know, the question is whether, how much, how much is symbolism and how much is grammatical historical interpretation. I think that's, you know, some differences between our millennialist interpretation and, you know, covenantal historic premill interpretation of the Bible, especially of the book of Revelation. So basically, I agree. The book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of imageries and, and, and figures of speech and symbols. So we need to be ready and we need to be prepared and we need to be trained to interpret the book of Revelation from a, a figurative approach. So in principle, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the book of Revelation, especially in terms of inter interpretation of uh, symbols in the book of Revelation, I have no objection to Dr. Gardner, but I think you know, the question is the degree, right? Yeah, how much? How much do you want to? How much do you want to interpret the book of Revelation symbolically, or how much do you want to interpret, you know, more, right, in in in, in grammatical and historical sense? I think you know that's that's the question between our millennial and and history covenantal history premillennialism. And then what was uh, the the postmill question? What was it? It was it was essentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Partridge, that. 
Um, while earlier you said that the church is optimistic while the world is pessimistic, that essentially if you truly look at the practice and reality of the pre-millennial uh, camp, that it is truly pessimistic, that you don't see this multi-generational goal to um, grow the kingdom and things of that nature. Okay, yeah, great. Okay, thank you for that. You know, um, definitely, again, here, I want to uh, sharply, as sharply as possible, distinguish uh, historic premillennialism from dispensational premillennialism. Definitely dispensational premillennialism has been advocating a very pessimistic view of, of history, especially of the end of history. You know, uh, historic premillennialists, as I have told you, uh, we believe the church is already triumphant. The church is already triumphant. And the church, you know, and also I, you know, uh, tend to agree with Patriot, uh, Pastor Patriot, about gradualism, absolutely. The church has been gradually uh, expanding right to the ends of the earth. And then the centers of Christianity have already moved to the majority world, including Asia, Africa, and Latin America, right? So now you know, Europe and, uh, and North America are not the centers of Christianity. I think that is very important. So the church is continuously, gradually, expanding to the ends of the earth. 1040 windows. Those 1040 windows countries in the 1040 windows are primarily African countries, Asian countries, and Latin American countries. So I think you know, the church has been expanding, you know, the kingdom mission has been expanding gradually for the past 2,000 years. And then in terms of uh, missional eschatology, Right, missional eschatology. Uh, you know about we have about seven thousand languages available in the whole globe. About fifty percent, thirty-five hundred languages. The Bible is available in translation of the, those languages, and then through the technological advancement, right, of artificial intelligence, I think the you know, uh, Bible translation will be speeded up. So I think, you know, uh, we will have the Bible available in most languages or in all the languages available in the whole globe, about 7,000 in the near future. So which means the church has already been triumphant and the church has been triumphant, okay, has been, you know, victorious throughout the church history because the church is not primarily uh, institution, not not primarily about political entity. The church is a spiritual entity. The church is is a spiritual uh, organism, and also according to the category of the church is not visible, invisible, and you know, triumphant and militant. So when you talk about the church, right? The church is already triumphant, and currently, right? Currently, the church is you know, doing some military work right against the force of evil force of evil so here you know already triumphant but still not yet fully so we are you know in the process of of, of military exercise so the visible churches are struggling absolutely but what about the invisible church what about the you know the totality of divine elect they are already triumphant 
and they are gaining, you know, victories even throughout the church history. So I think, you know, uh, the pessimistic uh, picture of the world is, is okay. The world will be uh, continuously declining in terms of its morality, in terms of its, you know, uh, uh, rebellion against God. But the church, the church will be, will become purer and purer and purer and purer. The church, okay. you know, not only numerically, but, you know, the church in terms of its quality will become uh, more holy. Yeah, I, I, I think... Go ahead, yeah, next, uh, Dr. Chung, I think that was one. I appreciate your optimism. Uh, you know, it's it's actually quite rare to meet an optimistic uh, premillennial. I, I, I've, you're a rare breed. Uh, we should put you in a frame and hang you on a wall somewhere. Um, and uh, no, it, it's a good thing because I, I really believe that the conversation is about pessimistic or optimistic. That's more important to me than premill, amill, or postmill. Um, I, I think that uh, there are differences between our positions as it relates to, and I, I'm trying to get to, I think, those differences for the benefit of the audience to, to kind of make some distinguishing factors between what a historic pre-mill and a post-mill or an all-mill might think. You know, um, I think it was Joel Webin that said, you know, in the pre-mill, it's already, but not yet. Um, you know, the all-mill is already, but not really. Uh, the post-mill is already, but not fully. Um, and, and so there's, that's how we view the kingdom. Uh, you know, the pre-mill is that there's a outpost of the church, but, uh, really the kingdom comes in with Christ. Uh, the amillennial view is that, uh, the kingdom is now, but it doesn't necessarily transform the world and culture in a way that the post-millennials would view that. And then, uh, you know, the post-millennial is going, Hey, well, the kingdom is now, and it's actually transforming the world in a redemptive way uh, in the world as well, not just the, the people of God. And so the, the point that I wanted to make is, you know, I, I really view Christ's work on the cross is not just a spiritual victory, but also a, a cultural victory, you know, because cultures are made of people, right? You, you can't separate the change of people from the change of cultures, right? Christianity is a comprehensive totalizing faith. Uh, it changes our affections. It changes our moral constitution. It, it doesn't just change what we want to do. It actually changes what we do. Um, and the spiritual will translate and manifest into the physical. So the gospel is spiritual, comes in, changes the heart, and we live in physical a physical world that, that will actually be touched by us. And, and it will be transformed uh, by the power of the gospel. So our companies will be Christians. Can, I, can I just ask Christians. a question right there? Can I just yeah. stop you right there? And and because I, I wanted this to be open dialogue here. Yeah. So the Bible says that curse are the grounds. The Bible says that curse is the world, that that death came into the earth through sin. So are you saying the gospel not only gets us to a heaven uh, or in the presence of God, but the gospel also heals the land? Is that what you're saying? Yes, but in a way that's not uh, redemptive as the same way the consummation of the second coming of Christ would. Um, it is. So what, there, what's the purpose of a of a uh, of a new heaven and new earth if uh, the gospel is just going to inevitably make the world a better place anyway? Well, because there's still going to be sin and death and pain and sorrow yeah. and weeping, and, and so all those things are still there. But the the reality is is that there is a spiritual 
message, the gospel, that enters physical beings that have physical impact on society. And that society will be transformed uh, by the gospel. And so it doesn't just stay in us and in the church. It actually must bleed into everything that we do. And so this is why we need to have, uh, it, you know, it should, uh, the gospel should not be limited. Um, it shouldn't remain in the heart. If we shouldn't run to the cross and stay there, uh, we, need, we need to run to the cross, pick that thing up, and it should translate into, yeah, Christian schools and Christian civics and Christian economics and Christian finance and Christian politics and Christian entertainment. And unfortunately, that's not happening in the last hundred years, even though, say, 200 years ago, Christians were known as the greatest artisans on earth. I mean, from the greatest musicians to Galileo and Sir Isaac Newton to Rembrandt, the artist, to the architects of that time, Christians were known as the best. And now we're known for terrible movies and, uh, you know, just that uh, ugly t-shirts. Um, and, and so... So, so what I'm saying is that no. there's okay, uh, uh, Pastor Dale. What you yeah. just said rebuts your your point, actually. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. I'm saying yeah. again. I'm not saying that it goes linear straight up. <laughs> I'm saying that, that like the stock market, right? You you look at the stock market and it goes up and down, and um, and as you zoom out, the general trend is upward. Or if you're if you're going towards the mountains and you see the giant mountain in the back. Once you get up close, you realize that you're going over a, a, a hill and you go down into a valley and then you go up to another mountain that's bigger and you go to a valley. And, and I believe Christianity and the church and the influence of the church over society has continued to be more dominating every 500 years since Christ. I'd like to jump in as well, if I could. Yep. Um, okay, so I, I think all of us... Uh, because we we are, I think it looks like we're all from the Reformed uh, tradition. Um, you know, we all we we all strongly believe that the gospel is transforming, that it is powerful, uh, that the Church of Jesus Christ should be modeling uh, what you described, and, and and that we should be seeing that. In other words, we should be what Jeremiah said to the Israelites in the midst of their Babylonian exile. Get in there, build houses, establish families, train up the people, impact your community, uh, do all those things. Same thing that we have in the New Testament with, uh, with, with the early church, uh, you know, getting into the community and serving the, the, the people uh, you know, and, and touching lives and changing things, which is really what brought about the transformation in those first few centuries um, where the church could not be overcome because it was impacting the community. So, yes, I believe that, that you're, what you're saying is, is right. But at the same time, we have to be realistic. And it's, it's not that the church as a whole is climbing the mountains. Okay, going into the valleys, climbing the mountain, going into the valleys. And that's why I described earlier what's happening historically. Okay, yes, the, the church eventually uh, impacted Rome in such a way that, uh, you know, it, it became the religion of, uh, of Rome, but then it collapsed. All right. And, and, and we see that historically 
period after period, you know, the Middle East going down, Europe going down, the United States is in its decline now. As, you know, but the gospel is still spreading. The church is still spreading. And I think as you read the New Testament and you read the Old Testament, what we see is that there is this, uh, the, the, the church is, is the salt and light in the midst of the community. But the book of Revelation makes it very clear that the church is still the minority, that it doesn't expand a, a, into uh, everything. It is still the minority, and and its its beauty, its wonder, is in its uh, you know the, in our presence with the Lord. Uh, you know the the hundred forty four thousand uh, virgins that are in the you know with Jesus Christ. Uh, those the elect that have been brought into uh, to, to his kingdom, and they're with him. So, yes, the church must expand. It does expand and will expand until every nation and every tongue is represented in the kingdom of God. There's, there is that expansion. But you're going to be very hard put in terms of reading through the scriptures, whether it is uh, Israel and Egypt and then the wilderness um, or you know the, the the kingdoms when when we have the United Kingdom and then the United Kingdom becomes a divided kingdom uh, and you know historically there have been powerful works of God but the vast majority of the people do not believe all of those things that that God did in Egypt and what do you have everyone dying in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And we, we see the same thing when Nehemiah comes along and he says, we got to rebuild and, and do all these things. And the people come in and they're still, you know, intermarrying with uh, with the the uh, Gentile world. And they're still, uh, you know, bringing in Sambalat and Tobiah's you know, relatives into the temple and doing those things. And he's pulling his hair out uh, because of it. Uh, so I think it's very hard to look at the, the biblical text and see what you're talking about. Though I fully agree with you that the, the church today in the United States in particular is weak because we have bought into the dispensational view. And, and there's no question about it that, that uh, you know, that, that majority view that says, you know, yeah, the, the, the Antichrist is coming. Um, we just got to hang on until Jesus comes back and, 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 and hopefully there'll be a church. That is not a biblical position. We should be like the early church, uh, turning the world upside down. So hold on, I just, I just want a point of clarification here. So Dale, are you really uh, pushing for um, revival and change of hearts into the gospel, or or is your argument more so from a theonomic perspective, saying that God's law is so powerful? that it's inevitable, it's going to take over, and even the unbelievers have to follow. Which one are you really advocating for? Well, it's hard to distinguish the difference because I'm, I am a theonomist. But the post-millennial view is that the gospel, if, you, if we kind of isolate them in separate corridors, the post-millennial view would say that the gospel will be the primary power for the persuasion. If you change the hearts of men, and you change the actions of men, and the actions of men will change the world that, that they live in. I just believe that God is going to continue to save people for millennia. And so that there are many more billions of people to be saved. 
and that we're still, you know, as Doug Wilson would say, uh, we're still potentially in the early church and that there's going to be multiple generations uh, coming. And this is, again, this is, this sounds so foreign to us, but it doesn't sound foreign to the people that were willing to build buildings that took 600 years to build. Um, and so we have been such a short-term thinking, oh, the world can't go on any longer. And so when you, when you see uh, the passages of scripture, you know, regarding, um, you know, like Isaiah 2, right? If you read Isaiah 2, you know, and, and we're all going to probably interpret this differently, mm -hmm. you know, but it says, you know, it, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So this is still in the last days. This is not prior to the second return or the final return of Christ uh, and shall be lifted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. I, I really believe that there's going to be that the gospel will actually produce as we go through, you know, dispensations, no pun intended, of time that produce, um, you know, right now we're, we're still at a point where the majority of the world isn't saved. And so we are seeing this ebb and flow of nations rising up in Christendom 1.0 and falling down. But we do know that with like the advent of the internet, the gospel is going out farther and faster and in translation than any time before. I would say, you know, Dr. Chung, when he opened up earlier, was talking about theological clarity of, of Polycarp and some of these individuals in the early church. I believe that we're getting greater theological clarity, not less. Um, so I believe as time goes, I mean, you figure that Augustine, you know, couldn't even have theological discourse with another theologian because you'd have to find somebody that has as much copies of the Bible as he had. And so it took until the, the printing press to really start having real deep theological clarity among the church that we have today. Now, sure, the gospel was ultimately clear and they were fighting battles on the Trinity and, and the hypostatic union and whatever else, but we're fighting battles now in eschatology as more clarity and clarity comes. And so, um, um, Yes, I, I believe that um, we're going to see uh, that Christ doesn't just have a plan to save, but he actually he actually wants to save. I mean, I, you know, Isaiah forty five twenty two, you know, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You know, Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, uh, I'd rather them turn from their way and live. You know, um, the idea of you know, uh, I think it's uh, Habakkuk. Um, you know, uh, 214, I think, you know, for, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. You know, th these are questions we have to ask. Are these, these about after Christ comes back or are these things that are happening prior to Christ's millennial return? And that's really, I think the difference between, uh, our perspectives. I would agree. And I think, um, we, we found a key difference here in that, uh, Dr. Gardner, you mentioned that Revelation is clear that the church will be the minority, while Pastor Partridge, you're saying, according to Isaiah 2 and some of the other examples that you gave, that the church will be the majority and will have the power and things of that nature in, that, in, in the world. Uh, Dr. Gardner, could you clarify where in Revelation you would say it's clear that the church is the minority? Um, chapter one through, uh, through chapter <laughs> um, okay. No, seriously though, uh, what we have, 
and and my view, I'll I'll lay this out first. My view of Revelation, I think, is is uh, a bit unique um, in terms of understanding it um, from an Al Mill position. Uh, I believe in the layered view that millennialists have, um, but but not in the same way that that most do. In other words, the the idea that uh, each of those um, sevens are layered on top of uh, of each other. I, I don't quite agree with that, and and that does affect uh, my interpretation and in the grammatical historical uh, perspective, as as well as in my understanding of the uh, post millennial view. And that is, I think there's a very specific reason why we have a one quarter in the with the seven uh, seals, one third when it comes to the trumpets. And then everything, when it comes to uh, you know the, uh, the the bulls, and I think that the, the the one quarter takes us basically from creation to Moses, um, and, and and so uh, the world has a very limited understanding, limited knowledge of uh, of God because you know it's it hasn't expanded, um, you know in terms of, of God's written word. Uh, and then the one third is the expansion of the gospel um, through Israel and through the Mosaic uh, law, in which God says the, the nations are going to look and they're going to say, what other God has given the people such wonderful laws as this? But the expansion of that kingdom is only from uh, Egypt to the Euphrates. And that's that's you know in a sense one third of the world um, is has received that message, and then um, with the coming of Christ, which I think is chapter twelve. I don't think chapter twelve is about the church. I think chapter twelve is about the coming of Christ, um, and Israel is is the lady that goes into the wilderness. That is the redeemed of Israel are the ones that are secure, and then we go into what we would call the church age. And there the gospel goes to the whole world. It's no longer limited to, uh, you know, a, a, you know, this third of the world. It's, it, it's the gospel is going to the whole world. And yet in each of those situations, whether it's the seven seals or whether it's the seven trumpets or the seven bowls, in each of those situations, the vast majority of the people are in rebellion against God and are therefore under his judgment. And so I think as you as you walk through the book of Revelation, whether you're doing it through a layered view or whether you're doing it through what how I just described it, you see the vast majority of, of the people do not believe. The elect do, but the rest do not. And, and therefore, the, the rest of the world has, has this, um, you know, its desire is destructive. It's not. Uh, you know, to to get better and better, it is to destroy, and and so in each of those things, they come under God's judgment because they are seeking to destroy the church and because they're seeking to destroy uh, God's uh, God's purpose in the midst of the world. Um, and That's so, it. Can, yep. can I? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, actually, no. I uh, tend to agree with Dr. Gardner here. Actually, no. When you read the book of uh, Revelation, chapter thirteen. According to the chapter, the whole world follows 
the beast, mm -hmm. right? The whole mm -hmm. world follows the beast, except some remnants of you know, Jesus Christ believers. So I think definitely the majority will be against God at the end of, of, the, uh, of human history and right before the Lord's second coming. So basically, I agree with Dr. Garner. And, you know, as a history premillennialist and as a covenantal uh, theologian, I tend to agree with many points of amillennialism, mm -hmm. uh, except, except, you know, the uh, real uh, physical existence of the millennial kingdom, right? I think you know, that would be a real uh, controversial point. But except that, I think, you know, I do not have major issues with amillennialism. Less we'll get there next. I but I think, yeah, yeah, and about you know post millennial position. I think you know still, uh, as Dr. Garner has mentioned, you know uh, your picture of of human history is too optimistic, which means uh, not not uh, realistic enough. So definitely, in principle and in terms of hopes and uh, prayer, definitely I want to agree with you. You know. The church will be triumphant and the whole world will become like the, the millennial kingdom before the Lord's second coming. Yeah, if that happens, why not happy? You know, we'll be happy with that. But I think human history does not, okay, human history does not demonstrate that way, that pattern. And again, as I've told you already, you know, annually 50 million babies are aborted. Abortion will not decrease. I think you know, this is a real hard fact about human corruption and depravity. So you cannot overcome that. So I think you know the Lord will come and his second coming will be our final hope, not you know, not his first coming. Yeah, definitely his first coming you know, has uh has uh has had a, a decisive victory over the power of evil and over the head of Satan. And the, the Satan's head was crushed, right, decisively by the Lord Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But without his second coming, we will not have the kingdom of God here in true sense. So I think, you know, uh, post-millennial picture of the millennial kingdom will happen after the Lord's second coming, not before the Lord's coming. I think he answered your question about the abortion because he does hold to gradualism. But I really want you to speak to uh, the the verse that he mentioned about that the world would be following the beast and only a remnant would be saved. How do you respond to that, uh, Pastor Dale? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, this is a different picture because when you under, go under the partial preterism view, you're looking at the beast as Nero in AD 64, and you have it a totally different context. For the conversation that honestly, I don't know if we have time to even get into that world. My, my thought is, um, when you talk about Dr. Chung, you said a statement about um, abortion, we're never going to be able to overcome that. And you're right, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, we will never be able to overcome that, but Christ in us will overcome that because we know that the resurrection of Christ is more powerful than the fall of Adam. And, and we know that that power in and of itself is what is continuing to uh, change the world. The world is, in a, in a sense, morally better than it was before. Now, 
that's a hard thing to, to think about because you have to think about generations, multi-generational faithfulness, and how there is more, uh, more gospel regenerate human beings on earth than ever before. And we're continuing to take ground. We're not just growing in numbers, but we're growing in ratio to the population. And that has continued to happen since uh, the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. I think about uh, are you are you including are you including Catholics and all the different mm -hmm. sects of Christianity in that statistic? I am. I'm including anybody that professes Christ. Obviously, we know that that's an inflated number. We don't know. We know that not everybody that professes Christ is regenerate. But the reality is that there has never been a time in history where there was less Christians than there were 200 years prior. And but so, how could you how could you make that statement? And uh, by making that statement, you're also verifying all of those other false sects of Christianity. Um, no, you're saying that that there is, you know, this is uh, when you ask, you know, hey, where, you know, Doug Wilson talks about this. When you ask, uh, hey, where was where was the church uh, when um, during the Catholic era? You know, some people want to say, oh, you know, hiding in caves. And, uh, you know, the true bloodline of the gospel was hidden back there in the corner somewhere. Um, and the real answer is, that, you know, where was the church? It's kind of like asking, well, where was your face when there was mud on it? Well, it, it was it was there. And the reality is, is the Catholic Church was the church. Now, we know we had bad doctrine. Uh, the gospel was was, uh, you know, absent from the vast majority of people preaching at this time. And if you know church history, you know that it really didn't get super uh, heretical until maybe 800, uh, maybe even 900. But from 900 to say, you know, 1400, 1300, 1400, it was a dark area of the church. It doesn't mean that there was no Christians, regenerate Christians. There certainly were. And so I believe that, that the church continued to have that growth. And, and obviously the Reformation gave birth to a new generation uh, with gospel clarity. Um, my, my point is that I want to get back to is I want to talk about the kingdom. And we have two parables from Jesus in the New Testament that we shouldn't ignore because we're talking about that's what the eschatology is about. And if the kingdom in Matthew, you know, uh, 1333 says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is the second of the kingdom parables, you know, so. Throughout scripture, we know that leaven symbolizes growth, both of good and evil. But here, Jesus uses the metaphor in a positive. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, right? It's a positive relationship. And, and so the kingdom is, is something that, like yeast, that starts small in comparison to the volume of dough. And it's going to have, essentially, a leavening effect on the world. That, that's the promise of anybody that knows how to, anything about bread. Right? The, the gospel is designed in such a way to make the culture around it rise. And it, it, it might take time for the kingdom to permeate. Uh, that's the ethic of gradualism. It may take time for the kingdom to produce that leavening effect. But Jesus promises that it's not going to fail uh, to accomplish that task to transform that which is around it because he is king. And he is the one by which the power of the gospel is being fueled. And so the idea of a church kind of essentially being beaten down or not being able to convert the world, um, really either we have to agree that Christ isn't wanting to save many 
and that he actually chooses to save just some, um, um, or that Christ can't save many, or uh, that the church is fails at fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, but I really do believe that you can't have, there's no paradigm in which the church fails because the church is the body of Christ. And if the church fails, then Christ fails. And I know that none of us here believe that the church fails. Uh, the dispensational view does. Um, but what I'm saying is that we have a triumphant Christ. And I believe the Great Commission will be fulfilled, transforming the world to be the dominant worldview across the world will be Christianity. That is, a, in a nutshell, post-millennialism. Um, translating into just actual kingdom life in the earthly sense in the world. Dr. Think, Chris, I'd really like you to respond to this, and then I kind of want to move into the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. I want to talk through those differences, but I want to give somebody an opportunity to respond to what he just said. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, again, it's, it's coming down to hermeneutics, and it's coming down to, uh, you know, how we interpret passages. I notice that, that you use two out of the seven um, parables in uh, Matthew 13. You didn't use the first parable, which is the sower sowing the seed, and uh, the seed goes out, and uh, three out of the four, uh, you know, places where it lands, it doesn't take root. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, when we're talking about leaven also, uh, yes, the leaven does expand and it does grow and it does, you know, take over the, the whole loaf, but it doesn't take over the whole world. Uh, it's, it, it takes over what it's supposed to take over. It expands what it's supposed to ex expand. Uh, same thing with the mustard seed. Uh, it doesn't become, you know, a, a, um, a redwood tree that, uh, that towers over, you know, at the, the whole world. It's, it's a mustard, uh, you know, which which grows and expands, but it, again, it's not the most massive of all the trees. So you know, if we're going to, uh, you know, that that again, it's a matter of hermeneutics when we look at at these texts and we ask ourselves, uh, you know, what is being implied here? Is the implication that everything expands, uh, you know, uh, to to the to the whole world, or is it saying that the gospel will expand? And I believe strongly with you that the gospel will expand, that the that the kingdom is going to grow and it is going to expand, uh, you know, uh, until it covers the, uh, the the gospel covers the whole earth, uh, but not that it controls the whole earth. And I think that's uh, our, our basic distinction is uh, is whether we believe the gospel is expanding over the whole earth or whether it eventually controls the whole earth. And, and that's where I think that both positions uh, you know, say that it's going to happen here on Earth, whether it's the post-millennial or whether it's the historic pre-mill, that that expansion uh, to the place of, of controlling the whole Earth is going to happen, you know, on this planet, uh, you know, over whether it's in the gradual progression or whether it's in that instantaneous uh, return of Christ, that, that, that that's going to happen. And I would I would say I, I, I don't see the scripture interpreting it that way, I see the new heavens and the new earth as being uh, the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages and uh, of what we see in the book of Revelation. I think, you know, this is something that I think we're getting uh, close to getting some deeper answers on, but unfortunately, for the sake of time, I would like to hit a couple more topics before we finish up this conversation. Um, 
although although I, I love this topic and I love where the conversation is going. And I'm also uh, intrigued by the partial preterism that Pastor Parcher brought up earlier. I would very much love to get to the date of authorship of Revelation and things of that nature uh, if we can. But before that, we had Dr. Chung and Dr. Gardner agreeing a bit um, on the size of the church in the eschaton. Now I think we can move into something that Pastor Partridge and Gardner will potentially agree on. And that is whether Revelation 19 and 20 are actual chronological events uh, that are going to be taking place in the future. Dr. Chung, you mentioned that this was something in the beginning that is foundational to your acceptance of historic premillennialism. Before we get into the questions and potential rebuttals and things of that nature, could you just reiterate why Revelation 19 and 20 are chapters that should be taken as chronic, literal chronological events that will happen in the future? Yeah, that's a wonderful no, question. And then again, if you read chapter 19 and 20, you know, uh, according to the basic principles of grammatical and historical interpretation, uh, you cannot evade that. So especially when I, you know, actually I have already told you uh, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus comes again and he throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And then uh, we have the story of the millennial kingdom in the uh, first half of the chapter 20. And then in the second half of the chapter 20, right after the millennial kingdom, Satan is released again. And then you know, finally he is thrown into the lake of fire. And when he goes into the lake of fire, he finds that the false prophet and the antichrist are already there. So I think you know, that's that's simple, simple uh, hermeneutics. I think the grammatical and historical understanding of the book of uh, book of Revelation chapter 1920. I think you know, that's really simple and clear. And then just one more thing I want to add is actually, you know, why then the need of the millennial kingdom? Actually, this is the question, especially this is the uh, controversy between our millennial position and history pre-mill position, even though we share the covenantal hermeneutics, right? We share, you know, more reformed understanding of human depravity. But still, I think, you know, between our millennialism and history pre-millennialism, we have the controversy about the the necessity or the need of the uh, millennial kingdom. I think that is related to the book of Genesis, right? Be uh, before the fall, God, you know, uh, commissioned or promised Adam and Eve, right, to be fruitful and multiplied to subdue the earth and to uh, rule over every living thing. That did not happen. That did not happen, actually, you know, God's commission was not realized because of the fall of Adam and Eve. So I think you know, in the context of this earth, in the context of this earth, uh, you know, God's original promises and commission given to Adam and Eve before, before their fall, uh, which means you know, being fruitful and multiplied and subdue the earth and ruling over every living thing. That should be fulfilled in 
the context of current earth renewed actually definitely you not know, because of satan's uh satan's uh bounding and and also the uh still in the context of spatial temporal world you know god's promises and god's blessings upon uh, adam and eve must be fulfilled so that's actually the need of the millennial kingdom and right after that we enter into the eternalized new heaven and the new earth so i think you know uh, that's the uh, major point. Actually, that is what I want to argue for. And especially uh, especially between history pre-mill position and amil position, that's the major uh, controversial point. And then actually, you know, uh, personally, I have written a uh, an article on that, and that article is included in, in the book, you know, entitled A Case for Historic Premillennialism. Uh, edited by me and Dr. Craig Blumberg. If you are interested, you can read that. I think you know, that is a proposal for a, a history pre-millennial from a robust reformed and covenantal perspective. All right, I do have a question for you, Dr. Sung, and then I'll, I'll pass it over to Dale and, and, and Chris. Um, why would it be necessary and how is it biblical that Jesus Christ would come back for a second humiliation. Second humiliation, what, what does it mean? Second humiliation. So he lowered himself to come to earth and, and uh, he became man out of that, right? And to redeem his people. He came for one purpose. That was to redeem his people, to die on the cross and redeem. That, that work is already done. And he humiliated himself by coming down and taking on humanity and and living here on, on this earth why would he do it again if the first time he came he came for the purpose of redemption and that job's already done what what would be yeah, as the, the purpose of a second yeah, as coming? the bible as the bible has been clearly teaching actually and as actually here our uh, uh our our uh, panelists would agree the kingdom of god has already dawned but it has not yet been completed, right? So the Lord's second coming, the reason for the Lord's second coming is completion of the kingdom of God. So I think, you know, the kingdom of God, the promise of the kingdom of God was given uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve by, you know, commissioning and blessing Adam and Eve, right? Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiplied, subdue the earth and rule over every living thing. But after, you know, when... Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Actually, they lost their rulership, and Satan began to reign. Reign, right? Began to rule over the rule over everything, and then they lost the uh, the power to uh, reproduce. You know, spiritually alive men and women, and also they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. So I think you know. Uh, God's original purpose was expanding his kingdom, uh, you know, over which Adam uh, would reign as the vice regent of God. And his kingdom promises and blessings were not fulfilled in the, in the context of the Garden of Eden. So therefore, his promises must be fulfilled uh, in the garden of this earth, you know, temporal, temporal, spatial, temporal world, 
And then uh, through the second Adam, right? Jesus is the second Adam. And then actually, you know, after that, uh, we will have the new heaven and the new earth. So he said the Lord's second coming is the coming as a lion, not a lamb, right? So as a lion, as the, the judge of the world, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, you know, the Lord Jesus will come as, you know, Genesis, as Revelation 19 depicts as the general, as the king of kings on the you know, white horse and also as the bridegroom you know, who, uh, who will have the bride, his church as the new Jerusalem. So I think, you know, uh, it is very simple. Yeah, that's actually my, my perspective. And, and uh, you may have some questions about, about my own you know, proposals here. Yeah, Dr. Chris Gardner. Dr. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. No, I was just going to open it up to pastors Gardner and Partridge. I don't think that you guys would agree that these are um, events that should be taken as chronological events. So if you guys could just weigh in with your thoughts. Dale, you go ahead because uh, I see you have to, to leave in a few minutes. So you're muted. We can't hear you, Dale. <laughs> you would you would you would think I'm 85 years old here, uh, and uh, so um, yeah, I think the position there of the the literal events uh, again with the partial preterist position and the interpretation of those events, uh, I think an episode on partial preterism uh, talking about the way that revelation would be viewed there and uh, and correlating with the millennium. Uh, I think you know looking at again. Is the millennium literal, as Dr. Chung would be talking about, in terms of a thousand-year literal reign? You know, I've had thoughts on uh, one of the, the common discussions is that Christ, uh, you know, in the Bible, you know, it says that God is the God of a thousand hills. Is He not the God of a thousand and one hills? Uh, is He, you know, no? It's just saying that God is. It's a long. It's a big number. That God is a God of all the hills, and um, that we can look at this term millennium as not a literal uh, a thousand year reign, but as really a reign of a, a period of a long period of time. And so there's different views, obviously, on the millennium reign that happened in Revelation 20 that you're going to get from even within the post-millennial camp, you're going to have different perspectives from maybe a more Puritan style where Ian Murray, who's the founder of, of Banner of Truth, uh, is going to have maybe a different perspective than maybe, say, Ken Gentry or Dr. Joe Boot or Rush Dooney. Uh, who will have different perspectives there. And so uh, that's all I'll say on that perspective right now. And uh, yeah, maybe a, a future conversation on partial preterism and breaking that down, I think would be helpful for the audience for sure. Agreed. And um, before I let you take the floor, uh, Dr. Gardner, and I, I hate to do this because this has been such a great conversation, um, but we are getting to the point where we need to close up here pretty soon. And so, Pastor Partridge, if you could just give us some of your final thoughts, and then I'll after that I'll kick it over to you, Pastor Gardner, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, um, you know how to how to wrap this up. Uh, you know, as we know, Adam falls into sin. You know, sinking his own path. Uh, but again, God, rather than forsaking His original purpose for the world, you know, the Lord, right there, Genesis three fifteen. Um, uh, immediately begins to work out his redemptive plan in history. And the outcome of that is 
is clear. You know, the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. And so uh, essentially we're seeing an overcoming reality. Uh, God's dominion is going to be extended in history through his people in history. And the spiritual heirs of the second Adam will gradually uh, fill, fulfill in the comprehensive reality and the task that was originally signed to the first Adam that fell. And so I think that ultimately we can trust that redemption through Christ will triumph over reprobation in Adam. And I believe society will progressively uh, be recovered uh, by the proclamation of the gospel primarily and the perpetuation of righteousness, like the moral law of God and standing for righteousness and, and actually taking the Christianity that, that is spiritual, but actually allowing it to permeate and saturate everything that we do. Uh, and then one day, uh, you know, the gradualism of God is going to reach its climactic end and the earth will be restored uh, back to that Edenic condition. Uh, the reprobate, we're going to be judged. The, the redeemed will dwell without sin and sorrow and pain and, and death for eternity with God. And so that, that's kind of the, the big picture. I think that's a helpful wrap for post-millennialism is it's more of a Genesis to Revelation uh, look at the victory and triumph triumphal nature of Christ, uh, trusting that he will win and he will take the world. Uh, it is his and he will inherit those things. And uh, when we have that optimistic outlook and the trust, the great commission will be fulfilled. Uh, I, I think it gives us more hope and it gives us more purpose and reason to live as Christians. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dale, for joining the show today. I know you have to go, but I do want to say that it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining. Amen. And, and I'll uh, hang. You can go I'll, ahead I'll, and yeah. I'll hang as long as I can. I got a couple more minutes. So okay. So back to you, Dr. Gardner. Would you have would you like to respond to uh um Sung Wook Chung's uh claims about the one thousand year of Christ? One thousand year yeah. reign. Yeah I, I um but I, I'm gonna do it in a First of all, I want to thank the, the two of you guys. Uh, this has been a very pleasant experience. And uh, sometimes it's not always that pleasant. So <laughs> I really uh, I really appreciated um, the interaction that we've been able to have uh, and a lot of agreement. And I think that that's something that people should walk away with, that there's there really is a lot of agreement. Um, you know, we may come down to the nitty gritty of, of the end. But um, but I also start in Genesis. Um, my argument would be, though, that Genesis um, is uh, that, that we have the covenant with Adam and that that, that covenant had four aspects to it. Uh, and and each of those are experienced. Um, the first aspect being the seed, the promise of uh, of the coming seed. Uh, and Abraham fulfills that. Um, it, you know, that, that that's that's the center of that, even though the other aspects are also part of the Abrahamic uh, covenant, the seed is the central part of that. And then we have uh, the law, you know, uh, obey me. All right. Don't eat of that tree. Uh, that's the second part of the, the covenant that God had with them. And uh, and that's, in a sense, restored in uh, in Moses and the law. Um, and the, the expansion of, of, you know, obedience and trust in God, which the law demands. Uh, the third thing is, is the land or the kingdom. Uh, and that's, that's reestablished with um, David 
and the the expansion of uh, of the kingdom there that uh, you know is eventually we're, we're going to see you know it's typological, but each of these things are typological. And then the the fourth aspect is the love relationship that God has that the prophets speak to. That, uh, that that you know we can we can walk with God and we can talk with God and we can experience th- through that new heart that He's going to give. But all of those are ultimately fulfilled in uh, in the last Adam, the second man, Jesus Christ, and, and and He fulfills all of those. He is the final seed. He is uh, the the the, the lawgiver, the ultimate lawgiver. He is the uh, the kingdom builder. And uh, he is uh, the one that brings us into a covenantal love relationship. So I think that that, that uh, you know that promise is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and through His Church as it expands uh, out. And therefore, uh, that but ultimately, God's purpose was not a physical earth that uh, that was going to pass away uh, because it is material. But His His ultimate purpose is that spiritual realm. The new heavens and the new earth, and uh, and for us to, to to say, oh, we're going to expand the kingdom of God and we're going to grow it, whether it's through postmillennialism or, or historic pre-mill, but then we got to have this final kind of you know staying here on the earth and and fulfilling the things of the earth that uh, that 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 doesn't, for my hermeneutic, that doesn't make sense. But in terms, and and I'll answer this quickly, in terms of. Uh, the chronological sequence, if we follow um, Dr. Chung's argument there, then that means that the wedding of the Lamb and the church takes place before the battle at the end of chapter 19, which I don't think we would agree with that, that the, uh, that, 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 that um, wedding takes place before this uh, destruction of the enemies, and then everybody's dead at the end of chapter 19. Every human being uh, is dead at the end of chapter 19, and then we're still going to have people alive in chapter 20 and, and, and a battle. So if we're taking this chronologically, I think we're going to run into some problems. Uh, can, I, can I jump in there? Absolutely. That's what I was hoping for, Dr. Chan. If you could respond to yeah, um, yeah. the, uh, the chronological issues. Yeah. Yeah, what Dr. Gardner just said is not, you know, uh, what I propose. Actually, you know, chapter 19 uh, uh, describes the Lord's second coming in two ways. And one is the wedding, right? Wedding feast. And the second one is actually the final war. So, actually, you know, chapter 19 itself has two parallel pictures, parallel pictures of the second coming. Therefore, I think I don't believe... Right, you know, wedding feast happens before the Lord's destruction of his enemies. No, I don't believe that. So I think you know uh, his victory over evil forces is actually you no. Know, uh, simultaneously uh, will happen, you know, with the wedding feast. So actually, no, that's not what I want. What I want to propose, and also in terms of millennial kingdom, actually, you know, uh, we have a lot of different uh, proponents of the millennial kingdom. Uh, I am not a literalist in terms of the millennial kingdom, which means I do not believe, I do not necessarily believe literal 1,000 years uh, of the kingdom. I think I would say my understanding of the millennial kingdom uh, would be, you know, an indefinite period of the Lord Jesus' rule over uh, the spatial temporal world. I think you know, that's 
very important because God's original purpose, okay, God's original purpose was, especially in relation to his uh, covenant with Adam, was actually uh, establishing his earthly kingdom, earthly kingdom uh, as uh, as Adam uh, uh, with Adam as his vice regent. So I think that that's that's very important. So that must be fulfilled in the context of the uh, spatial temporal world, and then finally, uh, God will uh, bring us into the eternal uh, new heaven and the new earth. And then actually, you know. Uh, uh, against Dr. Gardner, I believe the new heaven and the new earth is also will be physical, right? It is, you know, eternalized and also glorified, but still the new heaven and the new earth will be a physical world. It's not merely spiritual world. I think that especially in terms of the character of the new heaven and the new earth, I, I think we need to debate over that issue. I believe because our resurrection body will be material in a, in a spiritual, heavenly, or eternalized, uh, or glorified sense. So the new heaven and the new earth will be also a material world. So I think you know, that's a very important thing. So eternity uh, does never entail uh, merely spirituality. Eternity especially because we are God's creatures. God will remain fully spiritual, but we will still be with uh, you know, eternalized and glorified physicality. So I think that's very important. And so uh, definitely I believe the new heaven and the new earth uh, uh, will be material. And also, you know, according to uh, uh, Pastor Dale here, I agree with you, uh, God's kingdom, will be both spiritual and physical, which means uh, the, uh, the, the gospel will uh, uh, make impact upon not only our spiritual state, but also our material or even institutional state. So especially in terms of integration of the physical and the spiritual, the millennial kingdom is very important because God gave his promises to Adam and Eve in a more physical uh, terms. And, and his promises should be fulfilled because God's, God's faithfulness must be demonstrated and in the context of, of, of the spatial temporal world. And then finally, with Christ, with, with, uh, we will live in the new heaven and the new earth, which is both spiritual and physical. That's what Let me I just clarify. Uh, when I say spiritual, I am not talking about spirit, like ghost type of thing. I'm talking about we will have a spiritual body um, that, that Paul describes in First Corinthians. And I, I think the same thing is true uh, of the material realm. Everything that can be shaken, that is everything that is is uh, physical in the sense that, that it can deteriorate, that that's gone. Um, and just as you know, the seed goes to the ground and it comes out a thousand times better. So uh, that's going to be our physical bodies are going to be transformed into spiritual bodies. Uh, and when we talk about spiritual, we're not talking about less than we're talking about, you know, a zillion times greater than the material world in which we live. And that's the same thing is true of our physical bodies is the same thing is going to be part of, of the uh, heavens and the earth. It's going to be, you know, a, a, you know, 
I mean, think of it in terms of dimensions. We're three-dimensional or five-dimensional, depending on who you're talking to, uh, creatures. Um, when, when we are transformed, we're going to be thousand-dimensional, you know, 10,000-dimensional. Um, and, and the same thing with the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so when I say spiritual, I'm not talking about spirits. I'm talking about the spiritual realm um, that is far more substantial than the physical realm in which we live. That's good. So, you know, one thing that I've learned about this discussion. Yeah, in that sense, actually, you know, between history pre-mill and Amel, I think you know, maybe the major difference is about the existence of the spatial temporal existence of the millennial kingdom. Yeah, the one thing that I've noticed in this discussion um, is the fact that we, all of us, have more in common than we do don't. That, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, than we don't, rather. We have a lot in common. And I know a lot of people, when they look at eschatology, they're like, wow, everybody has different views on this and different views on that, and they don't even touch it. But I, I hope what this discussion has done is show people that eschatology is worth studying and that there's actually more in common than there isn't, and that we are all like-minded be believers. We all uh, understand what essential doctrine is, and we all hold to it. So if you're listening and you're like, this whole eschatology thing is just too hard for me or whatever, just keep studying. We all started from somewhere. Uh, these people on this uh, call didn't just jump into eschatology. They've been studying it for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, start with reading your Bible and comparing what you hear in this call to what you see in the text and get some commentaries. You can get Lagos. You get all sorts of things that can help you in your study. Um, but what we wanted to show you is that eschatology is approachable. And yeah, there are differences with the 1,000-year reign, the literal, or is it spiritual, or is Jesus reigning now? And there's all sorts of different ways, that, different things that we can talk on. And this this is only a small percentage. We needed like four more hours, I think, right? <laughs> um, but just please, if you're listening, study eschatology. Do a deep dive. Read your Bibles. Get your feet wet. Uh, don't think that it's an untouchable. It's it's you can you can do it. And we started here in Bible Dingers, and we've we've uh, presented to you all the major views, um, and and people who are highly qualified to talk on these views. And we've asked them what Bible, what Bible verses do you use to to substantiate your argument? And they've presented them all. So now it's your job to to get your feet wet and open up your Bibles and do the hard work and study. But we did hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if nobody has any other questions, I think I'm, we're going to wrap up here, right, guys? Yeah, I think so. And I just wanted to thank Pastors Partridge, Gardner, and Chung so much for your time today. Uh, we absolutely could not have done this conversation between Nick and myself. Uh, we needed the brains of you men to come together and discuss this. So, we're really thankful that you guys took so much time to prepare and to have this conversation with us. Thank you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you all. Really and just a reminder. I really enjoyed this time together. We enjoyed it as well. And just a reminder, if you're listening, if you're wondering what Bible Dingers uh, is, we are a ministry that walks through the whole Bible. 
and talks about mainly historical context and things of that nature. And now we are talking about eschatology. If you like what you've heard, please follow us at YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Bible Dingers across the board. And if you like what you heard, please become a patron for a little as $1 a month. You could, become, you could be a part of everything we do in this ministry. So uh, we love you and we hope you've learned a lot. Ding on. Yeah. And besides that, guys, we're going to be having uh, links and resources from all our panelists today. Uh, they've all written articles, some books on the topic and not only that, but other topics as well. And so we're going to have links to their websites and resources and things like that in either the show description, if you're listening on podcasts or right here in the uh, YouTube description, if you're watching on YouTube. So with that being said, thank you guys again for participating and thank you viewers for watching and uh, have a great day. Yeah. Thanks guys.